Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Okay, great. So uh, listen, welcome to uh, Latte with a Lawyer. Today, I've got someone really great, um, Emerald Shea from Lindaberry. I can't pronounce the whole name, so if you want to pronounce the whole name, you affirm, I'll let you do it. Lindaberry McCormick, Estabrook and Cooper. It was a mouthful for me too to put on the record when I first started doing it. So now I've got it down. <laughs> that's amazing that you master that. that uh, that's impressive. Um, so listen, just to keep with the theme of the show, um, tell me what your favorite morning beverage is to get you started. So I have a, a weekday drink and a weekend drink. All right. So my weekday drink is just a really, really strong dark coffee with like oat milk or almond milk because it's quick. Right. But on the weekend, I always want a latte. So wherever I can go, if I can convince my husband to go get it for me, if I have to make it in my cappuccino maker, latte is where it's at. <laughs> okay. I'm kind of with you. I, uh, I just have the store-bought coffee that I make at home and I probably have three or four cups before noon and then I'm done for the day. I have that problem too. Usually at <laughs> least two. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm a latte fan too. If I have coffee outside of the house, I definitely get a latte and I've actually got myself off of whole milk completely. I just use um, coconut milk. Yep. I I'm the same way. I do either coconut, oat, or almond. I don't really like regular milk in my coffee. Yeah, anymore, no, re- so. no, re- no regular milk anymore. Agreed. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anyway, um, so I was doing a little bit of background. I see what you're, it looks like you're a labor, um, labor and employment lawyer. Um, I do, I do a mix. I do litigation also. And my specialty area is in animal law litigation. Ah, that's right. You mentioned that. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So tell, tell me about that. Tell me about the work you do and give yeah. us a little more. Yeah. So I'm a much younger lawyer. I graduated law school 2020, and I did a one-year judicial clerkship um, here in New Jersey with a family law judge. So that was sort of my background. And I started here at Linda Bray McCormick in September of this, this past year. So I, a lot of times as a newer associate, you kind of do what the partners need support for. Okay. So right now, that's a lot of litigation, which is just you know generally people suing each other. And of course, labor and employment, which is people suing each other in the employment context. Yeah. So when you say litigation, what kind of litigation? Like what are the cases that you work on? Most of the ones that I've seen so far have been um, breach of contract cases between different companies. And then in employment, it's usually like... Um, discrimination, harassment, hostile workplace, stuff like that. And you're representing, and the animal law you're on the plaintiff side? You're on the plaintiff side? Usually defense, usually the defense. Okay. Oh, so yes. the firm as a whole is a defense law firm? Yes, I would say that's probably true. I mean, we do have plaintiff suits occasionally, but for the most part in litigation, we're almost entirely defense. Ah, very good. I see. Okay, interesting. And how'd you get into that? Why'd you uh, decide to become a lawyer? I, I had a little bit of an, a different story because I didn't have anyone in my family that was an attorney. I actually went to college for music. I was an opera singer initially and took some poli-sci classes too and ended up declaring a double major in that. And during my time in college, in my poli-sci classes, I took this constitutional law class with this amazing professor. Her name was Kathy Balin. 
And she was a full-time criminal defense attorney when she wasn't teaching. Mm. So she would talk to us a lot about her cases and her law school experience. And I kind of just fell in love with it and decided that I um, you know, wasn't ready to start real life yet. So I applied to law school, which ended up being a really great decision because I figured out pretty quickly it was a great way to use what I thought my strengths were, which were reading, writing, and speaking. So specifically how I ended up at Lindabury is I, in my second year of law school, I, it's called a summer associate position. Basically you're like a glorified intern. So I was an intern here for a summer. And even though I had never necessarily seen myself as like a firm girl, I always sort of pictured more of like a government job or public interest, um, especially because I love animal rights, but I just loved it here. And I felt like there was so much opportunity for like mentorship and to work with attorneys who really knew what they were doing. So I loved it. I loved litigation. I love being in court. I love writing and you know, filing motions, briefs. So I ended up coming back after I finished my clerkship. That's a big shift though, from music opera singing to, to being I know. a lawyer. I know. I so think my parents were a little bit disappointed. I think my mom had dreams I was going to be on the Met. So I think a lot of parents would be like, oh, I'm so happy. My daughter's giving up. You know, she doesn't want to be a singer. She's going to law school. My mom was crushed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. She's like, very proud of me now. But <laughs> yeah, it's funny because my daughter's at uh, Skidmore College. Right. And she's studying sociology, too. It's like and you think I remember when I was in college, it's like, yeah, what's she going to do with that? Right. So you never know. I think now also so many people go on from undergrad to get an advanced degree, either a master's, a doctorate of some kind, a juris doctor. So I always felt like college, the goal was just to get a really like well-rounded education and build up your reading comprehension, your writing skills, and then do what you want from there. So a good liberal arts degree is always a good basis. I agree. (laughs) It's funny. Someone said to me recently, which I thought captured the whole essence of college, they said it was assisted living for, for students, for kids. Basically, basically, right? you get a little hint of freedom, but there's still someone kind of responsible for you and overseeing what you're doing. Exactly. So you're like kind of honing those life skills. You learn how to be independent. You get good social skills and you're proving your critical thinking. Right. So then when you go out in the, in the war, real world, you actually, you know, learn whatever you need to do to, or you go into grad school. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I agree with that. Um, so, so you're just getting started. So you work with uh, senior partners at, at the law firm. And how, how long have you been doing it? How long have you been there? I've been at Linda Bray McCormick, I think like today is six months. But oh, just I started. Okay. just started, but I still call myself a second year associate because I did my clerkship for a year. Uh-huh. So I feel a little ahead of the curve because I did get experience that way. Okay. But yeah, about, about six months. So very new practitioner. All right. Very good. Exciting. So I was going to ask you uh, like what your most memorable case was, but so I'm not sure if you can answer that or maybe you can. I have some, I have good. some. Yes. So I think, so the interesting thing is I do a lot of work from partners. So in those cases, I don't usually get to meet the client or have a lot of client interaction. So those cases tend to be a little um, less exciting or like emotionally involved on my end. But with the animal law litigation, I have um, brought in quite a few clients in that area and really gotten a lot of client interaction. So I've had a couple very, uh, very memorable cases. I have some pictures of some of my clients and their dogs up on this bulletin board behind me. All right. Okay. And one case that stands out in particular, um, 
was one where there were my clients basically had a dispute with a, a, a dog rescue and they wanted to adopt this dog that they had had the rescue for various reasons, didn't want that to happen. And my clients were, you know, so emotionally distraught and loved this dog and wanted to stay with this dog. And for days I was doing whatever, I, like researching whatever I could to try to figure out some way for them to keep the dog because really in under contract law, under property law, they didn't really have a basis to keep the dog. But miraculously, I was able to get the rescue on the phone. We did a conference. They had a really great attorney who worked with me and we were able to settle it with a couple provisions and they got to keep the dog. And that was so rewarding. And I think not only the fact that there was so much up against us, like legally that they, and I said many times, we wouldn't have won this case if we went to court, but really in that case was able to use mediation and advocacy, advocacy skills to settle it for them. So that one always stands out in my mind. And they sent me a really nice thank you card from their dog. So <laughs> <laughs> extra rewarding. What kind, what kind of dog was it? You know, I think he was like a little terrier mix. He's very cute. Maybe only like 10 pounds. His name was Banjo. So. <laughs> All right. Get it. Get it. Now I've, I've, I've had two rescue dogs. Um, I, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up with dogs, although we did like kind of babysit for one for a while. But as an adult, I've had two dogs. They both both been rescue dogs, and uh, which is the only kind of dog I, I would ever have. And uh, the first one was a, was a cocker spaniel. That one was not easy. It really was not meant for. A family. It, it was. Oh no. Yeah, unfortunately, we, we it uh, we, we ended up having to give it away just because it, it it bit a neighbor. Okay. And so finally, it was it was just really hard. It just it must have had a very traumatic uh, experience before we got it. The, the the second dog I have is a little like uh, mix. It's a uh, Shih Tzu poodle. It's it's a great dog. It's the oh, they're nice dogs. Sweetest I feel like dog. Oh my god. I feel like poodles can be a little high strung, but I think they're very intelligent. Do you feel like he's well, relaxed? It's tiny. I mean, you might hear a bark at some point during this conversation, but it's, it's <laughs> little. It's maybe a uh, fifteen pounds. Oh, okay, small. Wood. It's a tiny. It's more Shih Tzu than poodle. Okay. And it, it's a great. It's the sweetest dog. Oh my god! It's it's an amazing, amazing dog. And that one, it's almost like we raised it as a puppy. I mean, really, no issues. But it's kind of like people. You know, you adopt a kid from a a foster. You don't know what you're going to get depending on the experience they went through, right? Yeah, no, it's very true. And I was going to say my other practice area is uh, dog bite defense. So uh, definitely had some cases like that as well, which are always very unfortunate for everyone involved. Well, what's interesting, I mean, so we've worked with law firms that have been on the plaintiff side, right? So you're defending the owner that had the dog that bit somebody. Right. I mean, right. which is typically, the, I, I, always, I, I assume there always has to be a defense side, but so our, my experience so far has been working with and helping um, law firms that have uh, had, had plaintiff cases. Yeah. And I think it depends on the, on the practice area too. I mean, we have a lot of different practice areas here from like family, wills and estates and trusts, like okay. the whole, so I just know in mine, we sure. tend to be a little more defense oriented, which I mean, it is interesting because it's sort of a different frame of thought to go to start practicing and be in the defense mindset versus yeah. the plaintiff mindset. But yeah, I think it depends sort of who you work for and where you are in the firm. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. So um, do you have any like uh, things that happen in your life that in, aside from your teacher, but are there any big influencers now that you sort of look to, you know, any 
books you've read or anything that kind of like is very inspirational? I would say, I mean, probably the person at this point that's had the most impact on my legal career was the judge that I clerked for. And um, she had been on the bench for probably over 20 years. Um, You know, she, she had a lot of experience before I started working for her. And I think what really inspired me about her speaking as especially a a woman in the legal profession, which remains pretty male dominated, at least uh, at the higher levels of law firms. Yep. You know, she was, she's a presiding judge in the county that I live in. She'd been on the bench for so long and she just knew so, so strongly what she wanted for each case. And she was so decisive and really was a force in the courtroom. And I think a lot of times there's still this perception like, oh, the, you know, the, the male judge is scarier. The woman judge will be nice. And it wasn't like that at all. She was, she really commanded the courtroom. She had a a presence and a strength. And I look up to that a lot, especially as a new, you know, not only a young attorney, but a female attorney in this profession. So she's, she's someone in my, my personal life that I admire a lot. And And you have an ongoing relationship with her? I do. I do, which is a really special thing. I think a lot of times law clerks get very attached to their judge because they really shape you so much at the very start of your career. And so, you know, she was at my wedding a couple months ago. She, her and I are very much in touch. So she remains a really big mentor for me. Oh, that's terrific. So what's your goal? Like if if you could look ahead, you know, 10 years, 20 years, what? what do you want to do? What do you want to be doing? What's your aspiration? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great question. And I, it's definitely something that I'm still figuring out myself, but I definitely see um, animal law litigation becoming more of a practice area for me. And I will say in particular, it's an area that's really underrepresented. So if you look up dog lawyers, there's so few people that specialize in it. And I think part of that is because it's an ever-changing area of law. The status of animals under the law is constantly changing. And up until this point, they really had just been considered property. There's not a lot that you can really you know, litigate over in those cases, but things are changing. And so I see myself as the law changes that I change along with it. And I'm able to create a practice group that um, you know, serves those people that are otherwise underserved in areas like pet custody disputes, dog bite defense, um, anything, anything in that realm. I think that makes sense, you know, because just in business in general, I mean, if you can own a niche, right. And become an expert in that, you're probably going to do pretty well. So I think that that's a good strategy. I think. think Yeah. And I think law firms are always trying to look at what the, what, new big areas are coming up. So I know recently in the last couple of years, a big area has been cannabis, right? Yes. Prior to, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2019, there was never a way to like market on that because it was still not legal in New Jersey. And now not only recreational marijuana, but just the cannabis practice in general, um, it's been a huge thing. There's now there's licensing uh, requirements. There's different ways of starting businesses that sell that product. So that's one example of like a new niche that's growing that firms are capitalizing on. So I kind of see this as maybe a different niche that could yeah. be growing in the next couple of years. And do you have the support of the law firm to pursue that? I definitely do. And I'm yeah. very... I think it's a good thing when you work for a law firm that's general practice, typically they're, they're always looking for ways to increase their client base and they're looking for ways to expand their marketing. So yes, they've been very supportive of that. 
And I'm, I'm another reason why I'm lucky to have come to a general practice firm and not either a boutique or obviously government public interest. Totally different story. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Where, where do you live in New Jersey? I am five minutes from my office. So I'm in Kenilworth, New Jersey, is which Kenilworth? is another blessing to only have to drive five minutes to work. Where is Kenilworth? I lived in Montclair one time in my life. Where's oh, you're Kenilworth? close. It's about no, 30 minutes from Montclair. Uh, oh, 30 minutes. Is it further west? Away um, from the city? Yes, away it from is, the city. right? Yes. So what are the, some of the towns out there? I'm trying to think. Burnham Westfield. Town? Westfield. Oh, Westfield, sure. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I know people that came from Westfield. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's nice. Yeah, New Jersey is a nice state when you get outside. Nice country. No, it is. And I know I had spoken to you a little bit about the fact that I'm from Pennsylvania initially. Yes. And yeah. I remember coming up here during college and seeing how close all the houses were together. And I wasn't a huge fan of that, but I have to say now that I live here, it's amazing just how close everything is to go to the doctor's office. It's five minutes away. I can walk, you know, to the store, I can walk to restaurants. So it's just very nice to live in an area where we're not spending so much time driving around. So I'm yeah, a big yeah. fan of New Jersey. I've oh, been good. converted. <laughs> what, what part you must be from uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yep. I was from um, Chester County. So maybe like 45 oh, minutes outside of Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I just, I just went to, was just in Philadelphia two weekends ago. Oh yeah. So yeah. I drove right through, in fact, from Baltimore to Philadelphia, I drove through Chester. So. Yeah, no, it's right. a nice area. And I think it's interesting because it, I always think of it as being kind of on the border of the two different sides of Pennsylvania, like one being Philadelphia, this like huge city, very suburban outside of that. And then kind yep. of on the other side, all farmland. So we're kind of like, I feel like right at that edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, so, so you just, you're just getting started. Um, is there any advice you would give someone today who's thinking about becoming a lawyer based on your yeah. uh, path? I mean, one thing I will say is I found when I was considering law school, when I started law school, there tended to be a general attitude from attorneys and law students that this was very you know, incredibly hard. You should be very scared to start. A lot of people are unhappy as lawyers. I'm not sure why that is that a lot of people try to scare other people out of the profession, but I would have to say that this is a, it's a, it's a wonderful profession. It has its challenges just like any other but it's incredibly rewarding. And I think law school for a long time has been something that very highly motivated people turn to because they're probably either not good at math or they just haven't determined what they want to do next. That was definitely my, my case. Okay. Yep. So I think something to think about in going to law school is that there's so many different paths you can take in the law. There's so many different sectors, so many different practice areas, so many different, we're not just talking about jobs at law firms. You can work for the government, you can work for, you know, public interest groups. There's so many different areas you can go into. So I would always encourage people if they're, if they're interested, there's so many opportunities you can sit in on law school classes. You can intern at a law office or at the public defender's office or, you know, any, any, group like that. There's opportunities to explore it and see if it's something that you like. And I think it's a wonderful career and there's a lot, a lot to do with it. Got it. Excellent. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I went to uh, business school. It was the same thing. You know, the, there's, there's, there's so much uh, uh, fear and anxiety around it. And uh, it, it's a great experience. Law school, I think similarly, I mean, you really, uh, you, 
there's so many great skills you get out of it. You know, uh, yeah. the whole case study approach, um, you know, working in groups, um, you know, really like thinking through like real life situations. It's, it's a great experience. A lot of lawyers do different things, right? Than just practice law. They, it's a great background just for business. I think that's very right. true. I think some people take it and apply it to different careers outside of just working as a practicing attorney. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, I'm curious, in, in your practice, do you guys, um, when you're preparing for a case, do you do focus groups? Do you do mock trials? What kind of pre case prep do you do? Okay, so I... I personally haven't seen a trial since I've started. And part of that is still because of COVID, right? Yeah, because yeah. trials have really come to a standstill. But what I have seen people do is, for example, if you're preparing for a deposition or some, some hearing like that, people do definitely practice. I've seen people, um, someone will play the role of the witness. They'll practice doing direct and cross-examination. I know as a younger attorney, um, we do have different programs that were like, I'm in a program right now that meets once a month. And we do practice skills like, um, deposing people, direct and cross opening closings. So yes, there's a lot of practice that happens. What actually happens for trial prep? I'm not sure because I haven't seen it yet, yeah, but I would guess yet. the same thing. Yeah. Well, that's a segue into, so uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you about just your view on technology and what kind of technology you guys use, you know, where do you think it has a place in your practice or just in law in general, since that everybody's adopting these yeah. things? No, I think um, there's been such a huge, huge change in the last two years with the advent of Zoom court. And speaking as both someone that was in the judiciary side as a law clerk running Zoom court and now as an attorney that is practicing in Zoom court, I think it's amazing. I think it's made so many changes that have made it easier both for our clients, for us, for the court system. And there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, um, technology like Zoom, it allows people to join in from all over the place, right? right. So you don't right. have to be centralized at the court. So for example, um, a couple months back, I took a case in Vineland, which is, you know, all the way down the bottom of New Jersey, probably two hours from where I am. And I had a partner stop by my office and say, I think you're the first attorney ever in Linda Bray McCormick history to appear in Vineland Municipal Court. So we're kind of like globalizing a little bit by using Zoom. Sure. I think the other thing is it's just so much easier scheduling wise, because before like before you if you had a motion hearing in, let's say, my county, Union County you can't schedule another motion in a different County for that afternoon. Who knows how long you're going to yeah, be. You can't get there. Right? You have the physical limitation. Right. Yeah. So now it's like, sure, I can do three motions on Friday and you just schedule them all out. You can sit in your office and do them. It just lessens the stress of travel and scheduling so, so much. So I think that, my understanding is at least in New Jersey, that's probably going to stay um, into the future, at least for some types of hearings, conferences, probably not for trial. But I do think the consensus is that appearing virtually has had so many benefits and that's going to stay in our profession, I think, for the future forever. So that's a good thing. And yeah. I would just say generally also, I know I was speaking with my um, assistant the other day, actually, about using our Outlook calendars. And everyone in our office is pretty good about using our Outlook calendars. We schedule meetings with each other on here. We'll put due dates for you know complaints or answers or whatever all on our Outlook. And my assistant was telling me you know, 10 years ago when we used to just have a big calendar that would sit on the desk and everyone would scribble things in. And it was not only hard to find what was coming, but also what had passed. It's hard to look back and say, right. when was that person here? When did I file that? So 
I I personally can't imagine the law, the legal profession without technology, but I think it's going to continue to be an increasingly important part of this career. And it's just integrated more and more into what we practice. Do you have a little tension though between the younger lawyers like yourself and some of the older? I knew that would get a smile from you. Yeah, there, there is a little bit. I think, um, I would say, especially with like case management and how we file things, Mm. there's so many really amazing systems that we use where everything can be virtual, right? All of our notes, all of our pleadings, uh, you know, everything like that versus just having it in a hard copy paper file. And there are some partners still that don't like to use the online system and want everything in there, like little red well, (laughs) which of course is is never fun because then instead of just going online and pulling up what you need, it's like digging back in the old days, like digging sure. through boxes and files. And Which so, is yeah, insane. there is a little bit, but I will yeah. say the pandemic and having, um, first of all, needing to learn how to use zoom and needing to learn how to use these systems from home back when we were still all remote. I think that spurred some people and increased their tech skills a little bit. So that's been a good, good thing. <laughs> no, it's accelerated. It's fast forwarded a lot of these technologies quickly. And, and as you said, which I agree with people aren't going to roll them back because, no. you know, sort of these like higher level activities like motions and, you know, deposit, there's no reason you have to do that stuff in person, right? It just, it's much more efficient to do it, you know, using technology now. I think right? that's true, but I have to say another divide will be with some of the older generation who feel very strongly about taking depositions in person and getting to be in the courtroom to argue motions. And they feel that there is a, um, a personal aspect where they can really see the person, make eye contact, read emotions, read body language. But I don't know how true that is because I'll say um, my judge always felt like she could actually see um, the witnesses better on Zoom than she could sitting, you know, in the courtroom because it's right there in front of her face. Right. So I'm not sure if that's actually true that it it's better to do things in person. I I agree with you that I there's not really a strong reason. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I've seen, I, I've, I've noticed it in, again, just the whole gambit, you know, from very young attorneys like yourself to older, people are adopting it. And it's amazing when you're forced to do something, how people, you know, sort of shed their old ways of doing things. And because, you know, as the expression goes, uh, you know, invention is the, uh, you know, or necessity is the, is the mother of invention, right? I mean, yeah. if you have to do something, you'll figure out and you, you'll, you'll make changes because you got to survive. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. So um, this, this has been a, a really interesting conversation. I like the whole uh, pet thing. Stay with that. I think it's, <laughs> you're going to, you're, I'm going to look you up. You're going to be a, you're going to be internationally known as a, uh, <laughs> as a pet pet litigator, but um, if someone wanted to get in touch with you and learn more about you and your practice, how would they reach you? Yeah. So I think all of this is probably also on my webpage with the firm, but I do have an email address, which is really easy. It's just E-S-H-E-A-Y at lindaberry.com. So that's, that's a great way. If you look me up, that will also come up online. So I always I always love speaking with people, especially people that are interested in getting into the law that, you know, maybe are still students or law students are thinking about what they want to do next. I always, always love to talk. Well, maybe you can be a coach. I, I talked to someone a couple of weeks ago and they were doing coaching at their alma mater for, you know, young uh, law students. That's amazing. Well, they were an attorney right? and they were doing that. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, where the heck were they? Uh, 
I'm trying to think of the law. They were also on the East Coast. I don't, it may have, it could have been Fordham or someone like that where they, yeah, they were going back to uh, students and helping. So. That's, that's interesting. I will say I'm a volunteer attorney mentor for some high school students in Newark that are interested in possibly going into the legal profession, but I've never thought about actually working with law students. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that stuff's fun. It's always fun to give back right after you've gone through it to help. I totally agree. Yeah. I, I, I think that's kind of the evolution of things. You know, you start to mentor and give, give back after you've gone through it. Anyway. I think there's always a little bit of imposter syndrome as a newer lawyer. You feel like you, you don't have enough to say, but I don't think that's true. I think there is. So. They, they, they call that uh, fake it till you make it. Syndrome, yep. Right? yep. And I think there's still attorneys, you know, that have been in practice 10, 20 plus years, still fake it till you make it on some issues. So. I mean, you know, we, we all do it and uh, you got to do it with confidence. And, you know, as I tell people, you know, even if you don't know everything after that conversation, you'll know a little bit more for the next conversation. It's kind of a cumulative thing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, that, that, that's, that's it. I think that's, I want to wrap it up for now. I appreciate all the time and uh, I'm, I'm not going to say the name of your firm, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> Emerald Shea from Lindaberry and I'll let her pronounce the whole thing if you like. And uh, I want to thank our sponsor motion track which uh, uses AI for case preparation for attorneys that are doing mediation and trials. And thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you, Jonathan. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.